the adversaries on the terrorism side aren't going away. And if anything, the threat board uh, international terrorism looks pretty significant. Welcome back to another episode of the Soch Podcast. This is Major Hans Yano, Instructor of American Politics at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. In today's episode, we bring you an interview featuring two exciting guests, Mr. Javed Ali and Ms. Audrey Alexander. Mr. Ali is an Associate Professor of Practice at the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan, who has over 20 years of experience working in the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Department of Homeland Security, and the FBI. He has held joint and senior level positions at the National Intelligence Council, the National Counterterrorism Center, and the National Security Council under the Trump administration. Our listeners should already be familiar with Ms. Audrey Alexander, who is a returning guest and a researcher from the Combating Terrorism Center at the U.S. Military Academy. I sat down with the two to talk about the evolving security landscape in 2022, one which is leading many to call on the U.S. to shift from a counterterrorism-focused security posture to one centered on great power competition. Is counterterrorism outdated and irrelevant in 2022? Is the U.S. adapting appropriately to meet the current emerging threats? Are there lessons learned from the global war on terror era that are still salient today? We discuss these questions and more. As a note, this interview was originally recorded in March of 2022, only a few weeks after Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Soch Podcast. I've got two exciting guests with me today to talk about our topic, which is counterterrorism and great power competition. So first off, I have Mr. Javed Ali, former Senior Director of Counterterrorism on the National Security Council. Mr. Ali, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be with you this morning. Thank you. And additionally with me, I've got Miss Audrey Alexander from the Combating Terrorism Center, making yet another return to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me back. Uh, moving right into our discussion... An important component of national security involves understanding the enduring, evolving, and emerging threats in order to make informed decisions about which security issues require prioritization. As part of that prioritization, though, inevitably, there's going to be some trade-offs that need to be made. So based on your backgrounds, what do you think are some of these trade-offs to the national security policymakers, practitioners, uh, and scholars that, you know, that they might be thinking about in 2022? So uh, there are a number of trade-offs, I think, that uh, the Biden administration is having to, to consider right now. And I would argue that counterterrorism, while still a significant national security priority for the United States, and we're reminded of that on a constant basis, um, even over the past year, that I don't believe that it is the number one national security priority for this administration. Um, and it arguably hasn't been the number one national security priority for the last few years. And if that is indeed an accurate observation, then that, that carries a, a lot of implications. So right now, Russia, Ukraine seems to be drawing all the policy attention and focus and clearly the, you know, the impact on the ground in Ukraine with the suffering of the Ukrainians and efforts by the United States and NATO to, to arm the Ukrainian military in this um, emerging resistance movement. So that is going to drive an enormous amount of attention. And it'll be really interesting to see what those trade-offs look like for counterterrorism 
going down the road, you know, one of those open questions is right now, even for Russia, Ukraine is how many resources and capabilities are being diverted that would have been focused on counterterrorism previously um, or fenced off, but are now being um, sort of pushed deeper into the Russia, Ukraine crisis. So that that's going to um, kind of, again, have have an impact. And then beyond um, Russia, Ukraine, sort of tensions with uh, China, again, that I think will will have an impact uh, on counterterrorism. Um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan last year obviously has a huge impact. Will we continue to keep the small footprints with special operations troops and other capabilities for mostly counterterrorism in parts of the world like Syria and Iraq and East Africa and West Africa? So, you know, this, this chessboard is constantly evolving and changing. But my sense is counterterrorism isn't just going to be the dominant issue for the next several years, the way it was arguably from 2001 to the mid 2010s. And, and the, again, that will, have a, that will have implications on the threat and how we're able to respond to it and, and other things happening in the world. So jumping in here, one thing that's really great about having Javed on, on the podcast is the fact that he's actually been in charge of helping rack and stack some of these priorities during his career. So I think it's great to, you know, get your comments on that. And in my mind, I think it boils down to thinking about how we manage state and non-state actors at the same time when we sort of take a step back and look at the, the problem sets and challenges that we're facing today. So earlier this morning, uh, I was looking at the annual threat assessment of the U.S. intelligence community for 2022, which was published by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence in February. Even now, we know that a lot of things have happened since February, but it covers a lot of ground. And just looking at its priorities, we can see China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and health security. And those are followed by climate change, additional transnational issues, and conflicts and instability. So going back a step to the transnational issues category or bucket, they list uh, new technology, organized crime, migration, and last but hopefully not least, especially from a CT person, uh, terrorism. So you know, over the last couple of years, moving from one of the defining factors to a bullet point and subsection of uh, this this document is really important because it's important to sort of step back and see that these aren't just word documents. They signal a real shift in what the U.S. government is focusing on. And uh, as Javed was mentioning just a minute ago, what that means for the allocation of resources to meet those objectives. So that kind of raises this question, too, then, of, well, are we trying to make too much of a course correction at once here? Like, it seems like there's, uh, you know, whether it be in national strategic documents, what we're actually seeing on the ground, realities unfolding, that, you know, the, the focus or emphasis on CT has definitely been declining quite a bit. I think it's inevitable that there's a transition going in terms of national priorities towards what a lot of people are calling great power competition. Is there a risk here that the U.S. is maybe making that transition too quickly, and that might have some negative consequences later on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, these are the really tough decisions policymakers in the White House and then the cabinet uh, agencies have to have to think through. And, I, and as I said earlier, I, I believe this transition has been going on for the last few years with sort of, and when I was in the Trump uh, White House from 2017 to 2018, we got the sense that 
once the accelerated campaign sort of kicked in against ISIS on the ground in Iraq and Syria, and then president came out, I believe it's the end of 2018 and said, ISIS is defeated. And, um, you know, whether that was true from an analytic perspective or not, the you know, political statement was made. That I think is when the, the real sort of hard shift away from counterterrorism started. And it's only increased, I would argue, uh, those uh, these last few years. And as Audrey noted, the worldwide threat um, testimony uh, or the, the public documents that are behind those, and I used to be involved in putting them together, uh, both on the classified and the unclassified side, um, they're a real signal of, of where our national security priorities are going. And so, as Audrey mentioned, you know, the counterterrorism is buried in the back of the document. And that's, that's pretty shocking considering how prominent counterterrorism was in all those public-facing documents for at least 15 years after after 9-11. And again, this is going to, we're going to have to wait and see how this plays out uh, in terms of threats. And you could also make the argument, even though this the shift has occurred, it's continuing to evolve, the adversaries on the terrorism side aren't going away. And if anything, the even on the international terrorism side, the, the threat board of, of uh, international terrorism looks pretty significant, um, whether from the jihadist side, uh, under the Al-Qaeda or ISIS banners. We haven't really talked much yet about the Iranian threat with respect to terrorism, either from the Quds Force directly or its support of proxy groups or, or its relationship with partners like Hezbollah. And that hasn't, for the most part, diminished. I think some of these threats have changed in orientation, but it, again, it's not like we have, quote unquote, defeated any of them from a military perspective. So if we're making these huge resource allocations and policy shifts, but the threat uh, spectrum is still pretty broad, how much risk are we taking to our interests overseas or worst case, another large homeland attack? And hopefully those kind of policy considerations or the, or the trade-offs with the risks were all thought through before we made the withdrawal from Afghanistan and before we, again, we've made these hard shifts to, to other topics. Yeah, absolutely. And you've highlighted so many important points about some of the actors we need to be thinking about. And I think, you know, just like us, many of our allies and even some of our adversaries, especially those that, that have established states, uh, but especially our allies, we're all navigating complex political landscapes at home and abroad. In the case of the United States, Al-Qaeda and its affiliates uh, and its competitors have had this magnetic pull over our national security agenda, you know, for better and worse. And now there's a clear desire to recognize that other things are important. And, and that's an important step as well and kind of moving on from the past 20 years. But many in the CT community, including, you know, Javed and myself, uh, worry that this shifting gaze towards GPC may make us actually turn our backs to ongoing threats. And it really doesn't need to be that way. Our posture can be different and, and situate us better between the two. So in my view, counterterrorism capabilities can actually be an extension of great power competition. Uh, and Sam Mullins uh, wrote an article about this in Just Security that arguably states it a lot better than me. The article is called Great Power Competition versus Counterterrorism, a False Dichotomy. And in it, he argues that there needs to be a greater appreciation of the fact that not only are counterterrorism and great power competition not necessarily at odds with each other, but in fact, they often overlap and complement each other. 
So Javed was just highlighting a bunch of these uh, really important threats that we haven't dug into yet. And I think Iraq and Syria are the perfect illustration of where all of these things come together. So we clearly have Iraq and Syria and those governments, but we also have the influences of, of Russia, Iran, and all the states in the global coalition of, against ISIS. Then we have the Syrian Democratic Forces, the Peshmerga, and of course we have ISIS, Al-Qaeda, all the groups aligned uh, with those factions, and then Shia militias. And it does probably sound like I'm, I'm rambling, but I think that it's a complex environment that we're all working with. But we have to recognize that we're all working with a complex environment, which is why it's so important to take time to think strategically and weighing those trade-offs, because that's the reality we're working with. So, Audrey, you just kind of listed a whole slew of reasons why maybe you know, we can still focus on great power competition while still working in the CT realm. But what are some of these real consequences, like specific consequences that we can expect to see with a shift from counterterrorism to GPC? Are we talking issues, changes in funding, force structure, attitudes, um, you know, actual policies? What are some of these consequences of the switch, or I should say switch, but the transition to a more GPC-focused national security policy? Yeah, I think there's some some really tangible things. So, um, and we were thinking about this even in the Trump uh, administration, knowing that again that that uh, sort of pressure to change was was pretty significant even then. And maybe one of those kind of real world implications is that counterterrorism for the United States is not going to look like counterterrorism and counterinsurgency of the 2000 of the 2000s and even into the early 2010s. It's not going you're not going to involve large numbers of U.S. troops on the ground for years and years and years, either trying to engage in sort of frontline direct action missions against these groups or, or trying to build up partner capacity. I think the model for how this can work uh, and make it sustainable, you know, very sm small footprints uh, of U.S., you know, mostly special operations troops, um, sort of partnered with uh, the intelligence community and working with local partners to, to you know, be the eyes and ears, to be the early warning kind of indicators uh, or provide those indicators. Um, and when necessary, you know, have a direct action um, component to it. But for the most part, the, the element that we'll be doing the quote unquote, the fighting or the action will be some local partner. It won't be U.S. troops doing that. And I'm not sure we've perfected that model uh, anywhere yet. I mean, we've seen different iterations of it, I would argue, but this very kind of low footprint, low visibility one, maybe that's what it looks like um, for the next five to, to 10 years. And, and maybe that will, again, allow us to make these shifts, for at least for the Defense Department, to all these other priorities. But again, someone's going to have to make that give that signal. You know, the Biden administration has said, um, without revealing a lot of details, and maybe that's the right decision, at least operationally, uh, is that in the in the aftermath of the withdrawal of, uh, in Afghanistan, where we don't have a combat mission there anymore, that um, we will continue to have some over-the-horizon counterterrorism capability. But again, there's very little public detail about what that means. So is that what they're hinting at to keep an eye on all the jihadist threats, uh, even in a place like Afghanistan, which we know has been a launch pad for attacks against the West, include 9-11? Again, that's an open question. We 
doesn't appear that we're going to have a, a, even a small uh, footprint inside the country. But if that footprint is somewhere else in the region, is that the kind of model that we'll be seeing in other other parts of the world? So I think that's a that's a real world example of what this could look like in the future. I think that Javed highlighting the importance of partnerships is absolutely vital because if we take a step back, the reality is the the problem the national security community and counterterrorism practitioners in particular are facing is how do we do more with less, right? So one of the ways that I think we've really come to realize this over the, the last few years, and, and this is both in the case of uh, state and non-state actors, is the importance of partnerships. You know, not going in it alone, even though that often takes more time to, to sort out that pathway. Um, and I think that not undercutting our partners or ourselves, especially in the way of counterterrorism, is going to be absolutely vital to mitigating risk. And I think we need to be extremely smart about coordination. And that coordination means not only coordination with our partners and allies, but also interagency coordination. You know, tracking back to what actually sort of is is recognized as a contributing factor to 9-11 um, in terms of detection and disruption is communication and making sure that we've got the right people in the right billets who are working with the right people in the right billets um, and making sure those billets exist to begin with to really enable interagency coordination. Because, you know, these uh, roles that we see as, you know, liaison officers or, or LNOs uh, are very important to how all of the pieces of the puzzle lock together to create a full picture instead of just having these puzzle pieces in isolation. And again, if we have to do more with less, how can we make sure those pieces lock together? Um, and I think that in doing so, we also need to be really smart about what tools we want to focus on. Um, I, I could be very biased because my research focuses on counterterrorism financing or CTF. Um, but I think that this tool remains vital to disrupting organizations and their efforts. So looking at how sanctions and designations and what tools we might use in that arena. So being really smart about what we're going to prioritize in terms of the tools that we're using if we are cutting back. And finally, I also think it's worth reframing CT a little bit. How can we put CT within a violent non-state actor's bucket and consider, you know, um, how organized crime uh, intersects? And this isn't necessarily just like the, in quotes, crime terror nexus, but how can we look at these various um, transnational threats, which uh, the assessment we discussed earlier raises, and sort of see where there's overlap and see where we can have uh, players in, in the IC or other parts of the government be able to tackle both of these where it makes sense to. A couple questions that I have with, you know, following up on that is, we know on the DOD side or in the, you know, in the military side, you see you know, things like the uh, security force assistance brigades being set up by the Army. They've been in place for quite a while now. The primary mission being security cooperation, security force assistance. Um, on the interagency side, right, like, or on the other, on our partner side, like, are there similar efforts across non-military channels, whether it be law enforcement engagement or on the intel sharing side? Do we see similar kind of a kind of a focus towards this idea of okay we need to work through our partners work with uh other allied nations etc like is, has there been an increase in efforts there that go beyond the ct realm like there's been a lot of ct cooperation and you know are those prior relationships from the ct side still relevant today or do they need to be modified or uh you know is, what's the landscape on that yeah that's a really good question um 
and I've been out now for four years, so my sense of, as to how that um, CT cooperation, or e whether externally or, or uh, internally in, in the government, um, in the at the interagency level, is working, as Audrey alluded to, it's um, it's it's definitely not as as current as it used to be. My hope, though, is that those um, previous relationships will sort of be enduring because a lot of them are just based on at a personal level, right? I mean, people know having worked with each other for years and years and years across either different departments and agencies or across different countries and different services. And my own career, weirdly enough, because I, I started in government uh, post 9-11 uh, in 2002, it sort of rode that post 9-11 wave of counterterrorism and the growth was exponential and it was so significant and again it it dominated everything um certainly uh from the intelligence community side but but broader than that um and so here we are 20 years later my sense is there going to be some pullback from from either the structures the the resources as audrey you know mentioned in terms of people and, and budget but i don't think we can go back to a pre 9-11 footing on any of that either, right? And then we learn the lessons uh, of the pre 9-11 days. If you don't pay attention to the threats that are staring you in front of your face, um, you know, something bad's gonna happen. So th there's gonna have to be a balancing act on that as well, even within the government. We, you know, one of these questions I've been um, thinking to myself, uh, and again, I don't know the answer to it, but even in a organization like the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which was created in the aftermath of 9-11 of and one of the uh, recommendations of the 9-11 Commission, are we gonna see a further uh, sort of uh, spreading out of, of different issues within that ODNI structure away from, from counterterrorism and towards all these other important national security issues that we've talked about and well even an organization like the national counterterrorism center which I, I worked in for a few years uh on one of my detail assignments from the fbi has you know sort of the zenith of the national counterterrorism center has that come and gone and now there will be either another sort of big center in odni focused on great power competition or, or something else and the a lot of the the people and the resources and the focus of nctc will that shift to to something um, else that's created in ODNI. I and mean, I think these are all open questions right now, but it'll be it'll be really interesting to see over the next few years where that uh, where that kind of move goes. Uh, you mentioned 9/11 as having been the trigger event that led to a lot of reforms or changes in the national security apparatus. One major uh, outcome or one major consequence of 9-11 was the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, which authorized the president to deploy military forces to conduct operations abroad uh, to combat the perpetrators of 9-11 and terrorism. So, you know, that, that has been a major source of authorization for the use of military force abroad. It still is today. Is that still relevant or is it time to finally reform the 2001 AUMF to meet these kind of new changes, transitions, um, as we hit 2022? Yeah, that's another really profound question. And what I think is really interesting in the 2001 AUMF debate is that there seems to be over the last year plus uh, more sort of focus on whether we still need uh, the original 2001 AUMF whether we need to scrap it all together and come up with something different or we need to modify it on the edges like that series of conversations there seems to be more momentum on that now than there was the previous 
know, 19 years, and certainly you know, a lot of folks in Congress are thinking about this. And again, it's another one of these really profound questions because it has provided the president um, the authority to not only go after al-Qaeda and other elements um, associated with al-Qaeda, but it was also used by the Obama administration to uh, to uh, authorize the campaign against ISIS, even if you even though if you look at the plain words of the 2001 AMF, and it's not that big of a piece of uh, legislation, the word ISIS doesn't show up because ISIS wasn't around on 9-11, nor was it um, part of Al-Qaeda. Al so it's been interpreted broadly over the past 20 years, and again, provided this authority that's allowed uh, the president and then through um, using the military to to go after all these groups or put pressure on these groups. But as the threats keep changing, and if there's some successor to ISIS or Al-Qaeda that's not, at least theoretically not covered by the original 2001 AMF, what do we do when that happens? And so again, I, I do think we need to go back and, and have some hard conversations about whether you know what the options look like for, for, for that authority, um, because there will be a new evolution of the threat. I don't think the threats are just going to stay frozen in in time the way they are now, but this will either require again new legislation or some kind of executive order, but unclear where that's going to go from a from a policy direction at least at the moment. So, a current events question. It's still too early to tell definitively what is going to happen with Ukraine. We're recording this on 18 March of 2022. Uh, but what would you say are some of the initial lessons of this invasion or the Russian invasion? Do do we see any takeaways regarding counterterrorism or great power competition that might be relevant? Like there's a couple interesting threads here that are kind of counterterrorism related. You know, one is, you know, the insurgency that is developing in Ukraine against the Russians, which is inflicting horrific losses on the Russian military. Uh, and it's clear they didn't learn the lessons from Afghanistan in, in the 80s. I mean, they're basically making the same mistakes they did then and, and incurring far a far greater you know, rate of losses now than even in 10 years of fighting. But also, uh, and I talked about this in my last uh, major TV interview about a week ago, that because of the influx, or at least apparent influx, of foreign fighters to Ukraine to um, to fight on the Ukrainian side of the ledger, Will that lead unintentionally uh, to some center of gravity for far right uh, extremists going down the road? Much like in Afghanistan in the 80s, it unintentionally created the opportunity for you know the the group that we you know that became Al Qaeda to to come together. And that's something I don't see a lot of people talking about, but it, I think we should because it, at least based on the anecdotal reporting, it, it looks like there are several individuals with far right extremist ties who are on the ground there already. And there's been far, there are far right extremist kind of foreign fighter presence in the Ukraine um, in the aftermath of the uh, Crimea annexation. But I think what we're seeing now is much different and it looks like, you know, has the potential to look like something that emerged in Afghanistan or, uh, in the eighties. So I don't know if Arja, you've been following that, but I, I do think that's something that needs to, you know, people need to be at least thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think that 
you know, what's interesting about uh, looking at the foreign fighter phenomenon, you know, and, and how do we, what's our disposition towards foreign fighters when they're fighting for a cause we believe in, but also recognizing that there are foreign fighters who are participating on both sides of this conflict. Um, right. And within that, we absolutely see currents of, you know, white supremacy extremism, accelerationism, um, you know, even, even conspiracy motivated we're seeing you know a spectrum of, of flavors for that participation so i think it's absolutely right to say you know what what's going to be the impact of this and think about that early 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 and often 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 because we need to keep a pulse on that because we may not know what's necessarily happening but we need to track who's going you know what is their ideological motivation do we see them trying to to organize because i think this actually ties right into a domestic issue that we haven't talked a lot about today um but extremism in the united states uh and that having transnational connections in a way that we haven't necessarily um seen historically at the scale we're seeing today um so looking at how our own sort of domestic violent extremism threats intersect with national or with transnational violent extremism threats that are not necessarily jihadist motivated uh, is another thing that I think the national security community is is working to maintain a pulse on, but is yet another reason why we can't let the gas or let our foot off the gas when it comes to uh, staying staying on top of these threats and evaluating them. So absolutely, thank you for raising that point. Yeah, I think about the mass migration of personnel, too, out of Ukraine into other parts of Europe, just, you know, how that might have political economic impacts that could also become breeding grounds for civil grievances that can manifest themselves, uh, perhaps in ways we haven't really realized yet. So that's about all the time that we have for today's episode. Uh, Mr. Ali, thanks again for coming on to the show. We hope to hear from you soon. Always an honor to be uh, collaborating with, uh, with West Point. We'll be in touch. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Soch Podcast. To stay tuned to all of our future episodes, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever streaming service that you're using. To learn more about the Combating Terrorism Center at the U.S. Military Academy and the amazing work that they do, please check out their website at ctc.westpoint.edu. That's ctc westpoint.edu If you have any comments, critiques, or questions, please reach out to us at socresearchlab at westpoint.edu That's S-O-S-H research lab at westpoint.edu The Soch Podcast is recorded, edited, and produced by faculty members of the Department of Social Sciences at the U.S. Military Academy West Point. However, the views expressed on this podcast belong to those of the speakers and should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any government entity. Thanks again for listening. This is Majoriano signing off. <laughs>